the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to this week's show. And today we have a really interesting guest. But before we get to that guest, I just want to remind you guys to please follow and subscribe wherever you see the like button or the follow button. And we hope you're enjoying the content so far and the guests. And we'll try and get as many great guests for you as you can. I'm enjoying you being here and I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. Okay, so moving on to this week's guest. Today I'd like to welcome Mike Sutton. So Mike Sutton is the Deputy Director of Flight Operations at Draken Europe. Mike Sooty Sutton is a former wing commander in the Royal Air Force, RAF. Sooty led the first squadron of Eurofighter Typhoon FGR-4s into combat in the war against ISIS in 2015. An RAF fighter pilot for 18 years, he flew the Jaguar strike jet before becoming an instructor on the first RAF Typhoon multi-role attack squadron. The Wilshire-born pilot led one squadron, a legendary squadron which fought with distinction during the First World War, Battle of Britain and the Falklands War. Taking command of the squadron represented the pinnacle of Mr. Sutton's career as a fighter pilot. He flew Typhoon fighter jets at nearly twice the speed of sound in some of the most dangerous and fiercely contested airspace in the world. He also conducted a live scramble in response to potential terrorist hijacking and served in operations Afghanistan and Iraq. During his time as a tactics instructor, he conducted a live scramble in response to a potential terrorist hijacking and served in operations Afghanistan, Iria, He left the RF as a wing commander aged 39 and now flies commercially providing operational readiness training for the UK Armed Forces. He was awarded the OBE in 2017 and currently has a book out called Typhoon. Typhoon is the first ever inside account of Operation Shader, the British participation in the war against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Welcome to the show, Mike Sutton. How are you? Hi, Simon. I'm good. Thanks very much for having me. You're welcome. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. You know, um, I try to broaden the variety of guests I have on the show. And, and I've kind of been looking at like pilots and, you know, people flying the skies. And I've been thinking, That's, I want to get a pilot on. I want to get somebody who has that kind of experience. So you're the perfect guest. Well, that's great. So I'm the first fighter pilot on the show. That's a great honor. You're the first fighter pilot in the show. I, I, I've contacted one or two uh, and, you know, people are so busy. I think probably you will find as well after your career in the military, you know, there's lots to do and there's so many things you can sink your teeth into, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I was in the RF for 18 years and I left three years ago and I had a fantastic time in the military. Uh, it, was, it was awesome to go and fly jets, see the world meet some fantastic people. Um, and then when you leave, you realize that actually there's a whole bright, you know, multicolored world out there and you can get involved in all sorts of different things. Yes. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about your book. Uh, Mike currently has a book out called Typhoon at the moment. We're going to get into that book a little deeper later on. But uh, the book is released right now, isn't it? Yeah, thanks very much for the plug. Um, yeah, I, I, I read a, a book called Typhoon, which is... Uh, it's a flying memoir, really, about fi flying fighter jets and how you get into that world. It's an insight into a, into a hidden world. And I uh, wrote it when I left the RAF during lockdown and everyone, myself and everyone else in the country, had a lot of time on their hands. And I finally got around to writing up some old uh, diaries that I kept. 
I was in charge of the first typhoons that deployed out to counter ISIS back in 2015 in Iraq and Syria. It was a pretty unusual time, uh, and uh, we were all watching and aware of the ISIS atrocities across the globe and across Europe. And I was in charge of the High Readiness Typhoon Squadron in the UK, uh, and whilst watching the news and watching all this get getting played out, we suddenly got a phone call one day saying, you, you might have to go and get involved. And a few days later, off we went, first light, uh, and then very, very quickly into the most kinetic, extraordinary air support missions over Iraq and Syria. And I guess we can talk about that a bit later. But it was so unusual and so high tempo uh, that I thought I'd write a diary because my, my memory is terrible, like a calendar. So uh, during lockdown, I finally got around to writing it up. And, and it's kind of with a bit of encouragement from friends and families, it grew from there. I, I think when I got back, one of the things that when you come back from a conflict, one of the things that, that people ask who went there was, well, what was it like? And what were you thinking? And how did you feel? And I tried to address all those questions in the book. I've tried to immerse the reader in this hidden world. So it's not a technical book about flying. There's a bit of that in there, but it's really about what happened, what we were thinking, what it's like to be flying at Mach 1, what it's like to be supporting the troops on the ground, what you're worried about, what you're, what's going through your mind before you drop a weapon, what you talk about on the ground with the other pilots, all of that sort of stuff to really um, expose that world to, uh, to someone who's never experienced it. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. I'm kind of one of these people, you know, I have a really inquisitive mind and, you know, I've always had this type of inquisitive mind and maybe now it's caught up with me and I'm doing the perfect thing where I'm a podcast host and asking questions because I love asking questions. And I'm one of those people who look at like someone like a fighter pilot and, you know, you see the you see their day to day activities and the training, all that. But then I always have these deeper questions like what did they do in this situation or, you know, when they're when they're lining up for an attack and, you know, they're strafing with the machine gun. Have they, you know, all sorts of questions, you know. But so I think this is really fascinating that, you know, you have a book like this, which goes into a lot of detail and, and shows the mind of somebody in those you know, frenetic and, you know, as you said, kinetic and hostile situations where everything moves so fast. Yeah, and I've really tried to expose it. And it, it's not a macho book. It's, it's really talking about not just the, the operation that, that we got into and that, and that I was sort of leading and the people I was responsible for, but really how you get selected, what the training's like, um, what it's like in the centrifuge when you get thrown around at 9G and you're learning how to counter all of that so you don't black out. Um, a few close calls during flying training when I almost crashed into a hillside in the Jaguar at low level um, and then getting onto Typhoon when it was the first multi-role uh, new fighter aircraft. And that first day, walking up to this huge 50 million pound aircraft and what's going through your mind? Um, I did a quick reaction alert uh, scramble against a potential terrorist um, hijacking that happened in about 2000, that was 2009. So I write a bit about that. And then this build up to the operation and the tension on the squadron and what everyone was thinking. Um, a lot of the, the, the missions that we did, we didn't know what we were going to do before we got out there. So we were told, you're going to uh, go and support troops somewhere in Iraq or Syria. And Often you're in the cockpit, it's a single-seat airplane, there's no one there, you're parceled in, wearing all your kit, 
You've got a little pistol strapped to your chest in case you have to eject. It's night, the rain's lashing down against the canopy, and you've got eight hours in this jet. You know you're going to fly over to Iraq. You know you're going to fly over to Syria. You know you're going to be involved in some action. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I've tried to just bring the reader into that world and just it, it expose you know, your thoughts, your fears, what you're thinking about all the time, sort of minute by minute, um, and also the relationships with, um, with friends and peers and what they're thinking and, and some of the sort of reflections of it all as well. Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating. So let's go back a little bit. Obviously, you know, when you were younger and you started your fascination. So you grew up in Wiltshire, didn't you? And you I, I, I know just from researching you that obviously you kind of got the bug when you were in your you know middle teens and you you uh, you started dreaming of being a pilot after being on a flight and so on. Tell us a little about that when the bug bit yeah, you. Yeah, I had a really lovely but very normal kind of upbringing. Um and very happy childhood. I was a bit of a, I think probably a bit of a kind of geeky kid at school and that I played a lot of sports and I was into that, um, but I wasn't a huge academic or, or, or anything. But, you know, see aircraft flying around and I'm ashamed to say, now I'm 43, this before the internet. So you couldn't uh, research stuff particularly easily. My family didn't have any uh, friends really that were in the Air Force. And so the idea of, or, or commercial pilots, and so the idea of, um, becoming a, a, a pilot or even a fast jet pilot was just something that I just didn't think I could do. Um, but yeah, after a flight uh, back in the day when you could go and look up uh, in the cockpit of, a, of an airliner, I went up there with my brother and we saw these things. We were flying over France. And I remember just looking down, you could see the lights of Paris, you could see over the, the channel and just thought, I've really got to try and give this a go. Um, and that's when I really tried to, to look at applying. Um, and a sort of friend of a friend of a friend of my parents was in the Air Force and they got they got this guy over who went to the pub and had a beer and he talked to me about it. And then uh, then I applied to the RAF after that uh, and didn't get in actually the first time around. So I had to reapply a second time. And, and I, luckily, I went to university and learned to fly there and reapplied then and, and got in the second time. OK, so so explain that process to us, you know, when you go to you know the the testing center obviously where they screen the candidates and so on what kind of candidates are they looking for so uh, obviously you have to be what 16 17 to apply you've got to be a a minimum age and i forget what it is it's i think probably 17 and there's a maximum age as well because the flying training takes a, a few years to get get through so i think it's 26 it changes every now and again but uh, between those two ages and then the selection process is you go up to a place called RF Cranwell in Lincolnshire, kind of middle of the country. Uh, and it's the home, actually, it's the home of the RF. And the RF was the first ever air force in the world. Uh, so it's got a really nice bit of history there. And you go to this grand base uh, and you get chucked in a little, um, uh, a tiny little room, which is a sort of taste of things to, to come if you get in uh, for accommodation. And then you get three days of selection. And the selection varies in, in the sort of tests that they're doing. They kick off with a load of aptitude tests. So you walk into a room, you're all facing this computer screen, and you sit there for about three or four hours, and they assess your hand-eye coordination. Uh, you do some mental arithmetic. Um, they've got a little joystick in front of you, and you've got to do some, uh, some sort of tests on the screen where you can kind of follow a dot and look at shapes and work out which way around they are and, you know, some things like that. And these, these things go on for three or four hours. Uh, you didn't have some maths tests. You didn't have a medical. Um, 
you didn't have an interview. And then after about a day and a half, you all sit in this room, um, the group of you, I think there were about 30 of us there, and they read out a list of names. And I remember there being about 12 or 15 names uh, read out by this corporal. And he said, follow me through into this room. And everyone's sitting there working out whether they're the guys that passed or they're the guys that go home halfway through. But we never saw them again. So I managed to make it through to the, the next phase of the selection, uh, which is into a big hangar for a load of group exercises where you're working as a team trying to do um, little sort of scenarios that give you some planks and barrels and ropes. And you've, you've got to display your leadership potential, but also be a, a team player. Um, those two roles kind of at, at odds with each other. Um, and then some more, some more tests uh, and exercises. And the whole thing goes on for about three days. And then you get a letter through the post about a week later, in my case, saying I hadn't got in. Right. So, so after that, you know, first time when you, you, I won't say failed, but you didn't make the grade, we'll say. But how long did it take you then before you reapplied or did you do it straight away? Well, I think... Uh, a lot of people get the chance, um, or a lot of people don't get in first time round, and so they they encourage you to have another go. And I think they quite like the tenacity of someone who who tries. And I think it's a real lesson there, actually, for youngsters that quite often things don't work out the first time round, and that's fine. You know, quite it's just an opportunity to go again and do it a bit better. Uh, I went off to university and uh, studied philosophy, which is a little bit random, but. I'm pretty hopeless at maths and things like that. So I studied that yeah. and I joined a thing called the University Air Squadron, uh, which was uh, an organization um, run by the Air Force. And it would teach university um, students how to fly. And if they had a bit of potential, maybe try and get them into the RF. So I joined that and had a fantastic time, met some really like-minded people. It was a really social organization. The Friday nights were always really good. And then we did some flying as well. And then about 18 months later, I reapplied. Um, a little bit older. I knew the system a little bit more. I'd done a little bit of flying. And I guess I gave a better account of myself the second time around. Okay. And I was going to, you know, say there as well, because obviously for lots of young people who want to become pilots, it's a pretty costly endeavor. I mean, to get your wings and any type of plane and to put in all of those, you know, you see on TV shows, uh, he has a thousand hours, he has 200 hours. So you have to put in the time. But in doing so as a civilian, you, you have to pay a lot and, you know, be in a flying club. But when you were in that aviation club in university, were, were the lessons from the Air Force subsidized or was it free? Was it a scholarship? Kind yeah, of it was completely free. So they had a, a selection process as well. Um, but, you know, they were looking for more of a broad range of people. So it wasn't quite as strict. They weren't offering jobs at the end of it. But I think there were about 20 of us or so, 25 of us that joined Southampton that year, which is where I went to university. And these things are dotted around the country. There's around about 15 of them. So wherever you are, um, there's one kind of close enough if, if that's your thing. And they're a great organization because they do teach you how to fly for free. And the hours that you uh, accrue there, you can use towards your private pilot's license. Um, so some people did it, decided a career in the military wasn't for them. But they got a bit of flying training, then they could, they could take that and maybe pursue it as a hobby or use it as their first rung on the, on the ladder to a commercial license. One of my great friends I talk about in the book, um, he was a fantastic pilot at university. He was sponsored by the Air Force, so he was due to uh, to join. But but while he was there, his eyesight deteriorated a bit, and you've got to have really good eyesight to get in, or you did at the time. 
Um, and his job was pulled at the last minute, so he left. But with the hours and experience he got there, he then got a cadetship with Aer Lingus. And so he moved over to Dublin and has had a fantastic career with them with them since. That's that's really interesting, isn't it? The co- you mentioned the cost. Um, it's since 2001, since since 9-11, the whole airline industry has changed beyond recognition. And the way that they used to recruit really was the big airlines like Aer Lingus and British Airways and all these others would uh, select people, select the people that they wanted, then train them up and pay for the training. Uh, but after the crash of 9-11, in terms of um, you know, people stopping flying and you know, the whole world changed, the model changed, predominantly led by Ryanair, actually, and uh, decided to start recruit people and, and not do the cadetships and to get them to pay for their own training. And this has now sort of permeated throughout the industry. Um, and all the airlines have twigged now that, that really pilots love flying and they want to do it. So they'll normally try and pay themselves through their training. And it's horrendously expensive. It costs the cheapest is probably about £50,000 and you know, most expensive probably £120,000 depending on your school. And it's awful. Um, it puts huge pressure on people. And, and most of them end up taking great big loans out and, and trying to pay them back like a second mortgage when they started earning. Wow. It's it's like, you know, when you hear people in the US paying huge um, bills and loans for training to be a doctor and all of this thing. But as you said, it's changed now for pilots and they're ending up with maybe a career, but taking a few years to pay back that loan to get that career. That's exactly right. Yeah. it's uh, the, the model's completely changed. It used to just be essentially an apprenticeship, you know, in a profession, you'd go and you'd be trained up, they'd pay you less while you were training, and then you were good to go. But now people, yeah. most civilians now start with big debts, and then they've got to work that through, and it takes people 10, 15 years to kind of clear it. So it's a shame. It's not a positive thing for the industry. When you finished in university, how many hours would you say you had accrued? I think I'd find around about 100 hours. And the Air Force training is broken okay. down into uh, three steps. So you do your first phase of training, flying training, which is called elementary flying training, and that's around about 100 hours. Um, in my case, it was an officer training and six months of square bashing around and bivvying out and a bit of marching, leadership stuff, all, all, that, sort of, all that sort of thing. But then where I really wanted to be was back in the cockpit, and uh, we were streamed after that into the different types of aircraft we could fly, either fast jets or multi-engines or helicopters. Uh, and I fortunately went the fast jet route, and that was another year of training then uh, up in Yorkshire, flying a thing called the Takano, which looks a bit, it's since been retired, but it looks a little bit like a Spitfire. It's got a big propeller, a nice sort of elliptical wing on it. Uh, and then if you pass that course, it's off to fly the Hawk, which is the, the jet that the Red Arrows fly. And I was really lucky because I, I went out to Canada to fly that for a year. Uh, that's called the Advanced Fast Jet Training. So did that, got through the tactical stuff. And then they put you onto a frontline jet. And I was put onto the Jaguar, which is the thing I always wanted to fly, a low-level strike attack jet. And that took about another nine months of training So um, before I hit my first squadron. So it's around about four, four and a half years of sort of full-time training before they let you loose in one of these things for real. The, the thing that I've always wondered... You know, on whether it be whether it be on movies, whether it be on TV, or whether it be on reality or documentary shows, that when you train to be a pilot in the RAF, 
do you actually, is there a point, let's say, where you're training in helicopters and planes and then you say, okay, it's planes for me or they decide and no more helicopters? Or do you get your helicopter's license as well? Yeah, they don't train you in anything that you don't need to be trained to fly because it all just boils down to cost. So the, the Royal Air Force, and I think it's the same across nearly all the Air Forces, uh, they will just pick the people that they think are best suited to a particular you know, type of operation. And um, then they, they push them in that direction. So the guys that started flying helicopters uh, after the officer training phase, uh, they had a full career in helicopters. Some people do, do cross, right. it's called a crossover. Maybe they, they do that for five or six years and they might want to go and try fixed wing or bigger uh, transport airplanes, big airplanes. And that does happen. But most of the time people get on a type big aircraft fighters or helicopters and they'll kind of stay on that and, and, and progress their career on that type of, um, of fleet. Okay. Yeah, because you, you kind of imagine, obviously, with pilots, you know, especially with fighter pilots, that because it's such a high precision and high training, you imagine then that a lot of these pilots could fly anything, but... You know, maybe it's the case that they say, OK, can you fly a helicopter? And they'd say, well, I did some training in the beginning, but then I, I, I didn't after that. So it's not, they can probably fly any type of plane. But obviously, when you get a, a helicopter pilot who advances and this is his sole purpose, there's a different level, isn't it? Yeah, most pilots could fly most other planes. Um, but the the type of flying that you do... Uh, it's just slightly different uh, between them all. And so I think what they try to do is get an idea of where someone's, because uh, it's not just a flying skill, but I think there's an approach and a character and, uh, and they try and get the right fit for the right, uh, you know, the right fleet, if that makes sense. Yes, I understand. And even though after 10 years of flying, uh, you know, a fast jet, you could probably jump in a Hercules transport plane, you know, have a bit of training and you better do it. You can cross over, but they they think it's more efficient, and it probably is more efficient to kind of get people set and then and then, and then get them very skilled in that area. I guess a bit like you know you use the, the medical profession analogy, you know doctors become specialists in certain areas, don't they? Then they generally sort of stay in that field. Right, right. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it makes total sense. But I suppose. Um, like that's one of those questions that I suppose people in the outside world are always wondering, how trained do you become or is it completely specialist in one direction? And that answers the question. That's kind of a thing you imagine is more cost effective. You know, you're not going to train uh, Commander X to be a helicopter pilot captain and uh, a typhoon captain as well. It's too much time and too much money. That's isn't it? exactly right. Yeah. And just like uh, in any business, uh, the military tries to keep costs down. Now, it's, it's an expensive game flying airplanes, um, and they're pricey to build, they're pricey to fly, they use a lot of fuel, so they try to keep the cost down as much as they can while still retaining that yes. uh, tactical excellence that you, that you strive for. And they use a lot of simulators as well for that. So there's an awful lot of syn synthetic training, it's called, that's a technical term, but simulators really... Uh, so that you can practice a lot of these procedures and then before you get into the air. Yeah. And you mentioned there, um, obviously, going around at 9Gs, you know, and, and uh, what do you call it again? What's the name of the the, the machine? Oh, the centrifuge. Yeah, yeah, the centrifuge. So, yeah. 
So the thing that I trained in that's since been replaced was in uh, the Bond film Moonraker back in the 60s or whenever. Oh, okay, yeah, I remember. But it's essentially a capsule room that you got parceled into at the end of a, basically a scaffolding arm. And this thing would just swing around. It's on YouTube. You can watch these things. And it just swings around this uh, this uh, circular room. And as it goes faster and faster, it kind of tilts at the end. So it's like a, you know, the most extreme fairground ride you can possibly imagine. And it gets you up to 9G. And to put that in sort of some sort of context, I guess, um, you you're, when you're wearing on your flying kit, um, you're your head would normally, your average human head weighs about five G, uh, five kilograms. When you put a flying helmet on and a mask and all the rest of it, probably another couple of kilograms. So your head weighs not five kilograms, weighs seven kilograms. And then when you're pulling nine G, your head now weighs nine times that amount. So your head now weighs 63 kilograms. And that's just your head. So if you can imagine your whole, the weight of your body now, uh, times by nine, and just the kind of pressure that that puts on you, you can't, you couldn't raise, if you had your hand on your lap, there's no way you could kind of raise your arm up against that. You're just forced back into the seat. Um, and the, the real risk there is that your blood is just pushed away uh, down towards your feet. And the problem with that is that your blood pressure in your head, uh, your brain would be very low. And, that, and that's a real risk of a thing called G-lock, G-induced loss of consciousness, where or blackout, where you hear this thing very occasionally pilots will gray out or black out. And it just means they've lost consciousness. Um, and sadly, over the years, jets have been lost because the, 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 the pilots blacked out and the planes crashed. So they train you um, about that and, and how to try to counter the effect of that in the centrifuge and then in your early training. Yeah, and it, it's quite interesting. I, I, it's funny, the other day I was driving with my kids and we were... They, some, they mentioned something about gravity and we were talking about it. And I said, we were driving the car and as we went around the roundabout, you know, and they were tilting over, I said to them, guys, you know, like in the Formula One cars, they go around maybe 200 kilometers around, an hour around the corner. So they have extreme G-force. And they were like, what's G-force? And I said, well, look, I'm not an expert, but it's the gravitational pull on your body at extreme forces and so on. And they were like, what, what? And I was like, just, you know, your body weighs more. And, and my boy was like, and so if it weighs more, I mean, if, if your head weighs more and this stuff, can your neck break? So that's a question, actually, that I was thinking, I don't know, because the, the stress is on your whole body. But if, as you said, if your neck was weighing that much with the helmet and everything on, uh, can is there a danger to your neck of like or or your your skeletal frame like in that um, movements? Yeah, my first question to you is how fast are you driving your car for your kids? To- <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Nothing like that. I wasn't doing nine G. Yeah, no, you're right, and, it, and it's it is a real issue, and so most of the guys try to keep themselves pretty fit and, and go down to the gym um, and. I know a, a really close friend of mine uh, crooked his neck um, when he was doing flying training where he was turning really hard one way to the left and he reversed the turn and his neck just kind of snapped back. And it didn't break, but it just caused a really horrible muscle injury uh, that has kind of stayed with him. And, and he never made it through fast jet training as a result because he, he had some physio for a few months, but then wow. when he called the G again, uh, his neck immediately had this kind of searing pain in it and he just couldn't do it. So he... Uh, had to stop and go and fly transport airplanes. So 
yeah, it is a big factor. Um, wow. It, Palinji is a, it's a strange thing. You get used to it. You, you, we used to sometimes take passengers for, um, for rides in the Typhoon, and I'd never pull very much G. There were actually limits on what you could do, but you just pull a little bit. And people would, you'd land having, having flown this thing around for an hour and turned it upside down a couple of times. And people would peel themselves out the back of the aeroplane, just go, oh my goodness, I need a coffee. But in the front, because you're doing it every day, you, you, you're just kind of used to it. So it's funny what you physiologically get used to doing, but absolutely there's a real risk of neck yes. injury, um, particularly. But also if, you, if you're twisting your body around, trying to look behind the aircraft when you pull G, it can be really uncomfortable. Uh, so it is something that it's it's not fun. It's something that you you just kind of get used to. You get match fit for, and the more you do it, funnily enough, actually the easier it gets. Yeah, and I also read there that a strange thing for you you suffer from vertigo, or you did did in the past, no? Yeah, no, I did. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, I still do. Yeah, I'm like I'm awful with heights, so uh, I'm okay in an aircraft, which is kind of lucky given my job, but. If I'm anywhere high, like uh, I was on the holiday with my girlfriend a few months ago, and we had a little balcony outside the hotel room, and she went out and leaned over. I couldn't get anywhere near the edge. I'd stay about three feet back and kind of hold myself back. So, yeah, if I'd passed all the attitude tests at Cranwell, and then they'd told me to go and look outside the balcony, I'd probably have failed it at that point. So, yeah, I don't really like the kites very much. Do you think you don't, you don't feel it the same way because... It's kind of like, you know, when you're in a car, you don't really feel like you could be moving very fast, but you don't feel it. So when you're in a plane and even when you look out and you're 30,000 feet up, you don't feel like it's a height, do you? It's really strange. I think because you're strapped in and you're in a, in a canopy, I don't feel it at all. No, I, I don't get any vertigo. I think it's the risk of, uh, for me, it's a really weird feeling, isn't it? It's the risk of falling. Um so yeah, any yeah. sort of height going up a like I hate glass floors. You see them sometimes, don't you? There's no way I'd ever stand on a yes, glass yes, floor yes. or a glass bridge or anything crazy. No, like no, I don't like that. Uh, but no, when I'm in the, in an aircraft, yeah. How then, if when you're in a plane and you do like a barrel roll or something, a maneuver where you have to turn. Now I know maybe you don't do them that often, but where you have to turn the plane upside down or something. Especially, you can imagine, obviously, with the Red Devils or any of these stunt planes. Would you suffer from vertigo and that's when you're upside down? No, luckily not. I think it's, I think it's all psychological, isn't it? And when you're strapped in and yeah. strapped into an ejection seat, I always felt, felt pretty safe. So I never had an issue with it when I was actually in the air, luckily. Brilliant. I wanted to ask you there... A very interesting. I was reading some excerpts from your book actually today uh, from the Daily Mail. And um, what was really interesting for me was when you were talking about the training and when you had that part of the training where you were uh, hunted down in, in the, the um, by the Marines and you had to simulate being captured by the enemy and you had a pistol in, in the worst case scenario. But that was quite interesting because, you know, if you watch these shows, SES, Who Dares, you know, the reality shows that are on TV now and they're hunting down the can the recruits and so on. But in your scenario, if a fighter pilot is, you know, taken out or he's, you know, hit by something but survives or he ejects um, and you have that kind of situation. One thing I thought was really interesting, what you said was 
you knew in the middle of that situation that you could go down to the pub on a Friday night or there'd be a party after the training. So psychologically, when you're doing the training, you know that it's not 100% real compared to the real thing, no? Yeah, 100%. And who doesn't like a party in Newquay after a few days on Bodmin Moor, right? <laughs> I mean, the training, yes, we, yes. we did survival training in, in kind of basic survival. I remember doing a week of training without food up in North Yorkshire. It was January and it was sort of north degrees and drizzly and it was unpleasant. Uh, and then I did a winter survival course in, when I was over in Canada and that was that got pretty cold. You could take a glass of water and just chuck it into the air and it would just turn into ice crystals and, and fall down. So that was chilly. Um, yeah. And then when I got onto the front line, they make you do a course, uh, an escape and evasion um, kind of course, which is more tactically focused. And that was a few couple of days of training and then three or four days outside where you don't sleep. They get you to do navigation exercises at night so you don't sleep. They give you lectures in the day. The whole thing really just to kind of get you tired. And then on the last night, uh, you do a, um, a navigation thing where you've got to get from um, A to B over about 10 kilometers and you know the Marines are out after you and they, they're trying to get you to move tactically through rivers and keeping a low profile. But it's a turkey shoot really because you've got a load of really tired pilots being hunted by the Royal Marines with all their night vision equipment. So everyone gets caught and then um, put into a, uh, um, it's, it's called the monkey house, but you get put into a building where they put you in stress positions. And I had about a day, about 20 hours of that, where they just expose you to some unpleasant things and and and, and you, you get a bit of training. But I think reading, reading experiences of people who've been shot down for real and what they've gone through, I think the training can only ever go so far. And all their experiences are, are really different and, and really challenging. And you touched on the risk that, that we faced out there and the enemy did have surface to air missiles and small arms and um, when we first went out the whole of the region was under control of ISIS and the thought of, of bailing out into that situation was a, was a harrowing one and we had uh, combat search and rescue um, forces on standby but there was no guarantee that they'd have, they would have been there so we had some procedures the main coping mechanism really was to not think about it too much, uh, learn the procedures and, um, and and know what you're going to do if the worst happens, but really just focus on the job in hand and focus on helping soldiers, which is precisely why we were there and just concentrate on that. Yeah. OK, it's really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, let's move on to obviously when, when you're talking about the book, but the you know the main focus of the book the typhoon the aircraft so you know the the typhoon is a a, um, a eurofighter and and we we've seen the eurofighter on our uh, tv screens for years because obviously there was a joint collaboration you know in europe between the french and the english and all the different nations so you said there you trained up on the jaguar and then you switched over to the typhoon was it a completely different animal as as regards the plane when you first took the controls of that and you thought, wow, let's see what this baby can do? Yeah, I guess it was probably like getting out of a Ford Capri and and, and getting into a Formula One car. Uh, the Jaguar was a great aeroplane. Wow. It would go fast, it would do 500 knots, but it wasn't very maneuverable and it was pretty old. It was full of uh, old steam-driven instruments that had been flying really since the 70s. 
So it was a great force to be on. It had taken part in, in Gulf War One. It had a huge operational background to it, but it was getting long in the tooth by the time I joined it. And then I was really lucky to get onto the first Typhoon Squadron. So the Jag, the the MOD actually closed the the RF closed the Jaguar force, and um, a few of us got onto the Typhoon, which was great. So I was on that first Typhoon Squadron, and it was a generational leap. It was a a multi role aeroplane, which means that it can it can do reconnaissance, it can do air to air, long range um, missile shooting, it can do quick direction alert, which is scrambling to intercept. Uh, aircraft. It can do air to ground, which means that it can drop weapons. It can support the army, and it's really agile, so it could fly almost Mach two. It could turn at nine G. Um, so it's like stepping into something that's a cross between a Formula One car and a rocket ship, and and learning how to fly that, and learning all of those different roles, because you could flick between all of these different roles seamlessly within a second, and learning that skill set was was really exciting challenge. Wow. And, you know, for when you have previously flown the Jaguar and all the other planes, which at that point were probably one of the most up to date planes in the fleet, before you step into the Typhoon, do you have to do a lot of simulator training or do they just say you'll be fine? <laughs> yeah, you've got to do uh, back to ground school. So every time you, you move aircraft type, you've got to do a few weeks of ground school and they teach you all the system. So you'll sit there in the classroom. It's just like being at school. Uh, they'll give you a load of books, a load of folders, and you've got to start learning about the engines, the hydraulic systems, the electrics, how the thing works, the radios, all of that. You then have an exam to make sure that you've taken that in and you haven't spent the whole time in the bar. And then uh, you go and fly the simulator. And it's normally another two or three weeks of simulator flying where you'll practice everything from how to get the engine started right through to takeoffs, landings, navigation, uh, and then emergency procedures, because these jets are, the Typhoon's a single seat jet. So you've got to be able to learn how to cope in case you have an engine failure or a fire or, or some sort of other emergency. So you practice all these emergency procedures as well. So it takes around about six to eight weeks or so of, of that. And then they let you into the airplane for the first time. A question I always kind of wonder, how close is simulator training to the actual jets? It's a great question. And there's there's this constant conversation between accountants who want military pilots to do all their flying in the simulator because it's cheaper and the pilots who don't really want to get the simulator at all and would rather do it all live. Um, I think there's a balance and the simulator is great because you can create all sorts of crazy scenarios for people to train in. You can give them all sorts of emergencies that you can't, you can't deal with uh, or you wouldn't want to necessarily have to practice with for real. And you can just do things and you can repeat them and repeat them and repeat them until you get it right in a really safe environment. So the simulator training is fantastic uh, and really useful. But there's no uh, there's no substitute for live flying as well. And there's something that's psychological about actually taking off in an aeroplane and the real frictions of just life, going out to an aeroplane when it's raining, pulling G, experiencing the physiological sensations of turning, um, all of that stuff on your neck that we're speaking about as well. Uh, and just the fact that no simulator actually is re- realistic enough to replace an aircraft yet. Now, it might well come in the next 20 or 30 right. years where it is so immersive that you could do much more in the simulator. Um, 
people talk about um, leaving your brain on the ground. And I used to be a, a, a fast jet instructor as well for a few years. And you, you teach something to someone in the simulator and they do it perfectly. And then you get into the air and they forget all sorts of checks. Um, they get it wrong. They get confused. They can be a bit disorientated. And it's that expression of just leaving your brain on the ground that it's just different. Um, and as much as you can make the visuals in the simulators as accurate as possible, when you're actually strapping the aeroplane on and blasting it into the sky and it's your pink body that's in, you know, on the line and it feels like it's live and there's an element of risk, it's, it's a very different thing actually going flying. So I think, uh, especially for tactical flying, you need a real balance of the synthetic and the live flying to make the best uh, output. I guess my question to you would be, you know, if your surgeon had only ever done an operation on a, on a, on a simulator and then you would, you could go and take your heart out, you know, would you be happy for that or not? And I think you just need to kind of do it for real really to get the experience. If that was the accountant on the table, he wouldn't be thinking about the cost then. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question, you know, the, that operation you were working on, one of the operations shader. <clears throat> so did that name kind of come from that from the Storm Shadow cruise missile? Because I know that w wasn't on; it wasn't rigged up to fit on the Typhoons. But I think now it's been used, or it's been used for a while. No, yeah, you're you've got some good knowledge about the Typhoon weapons. I'm impressed. Well, I've I've researched a little bit. The operation it was called Shader, not not really because of the Typhoon. That was the UK uh, response, which which was more than just the Typhoons. Uh, funnily enough, the names of operations are actually picked by someone in central government. So they don't normally relate to an aircraft type. So I, I don't know why they call it Shader, actually. Right. Yeah, I, I just I kind of made the link in my mind because of Storm Shadow and then Shader. I thought, oh, maybe there's a link there. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a good link. Maybe there was, but I, I didn't know about it. That Storm Shadow cruise missile, you know, it's a kind of... It's a very advanced piece of equipment, no? Yeah, the Typhoon's got all sorts of weapons on it. And um, in order to do the air-to-air -air and the air-to-ground and the reconnaissance, it's got a whole suite of different things that it can use. So at the very basic level, it's got a 27-millimeter cannon, which can, fire, uh, which can fire shells. It's got short-range infrared um, Mach 3 missile, uh, called the ASRAM, which is a fantastic bit of kit. And uh, the pilots fly with a helmet-mounted sight, uh, which projects a load of images onto your visor. And it means that you can um, fire this thing just by looking at another aircraft. So if you see it, you can you can move your head, you can lock the missile on, and you can fire it just by looking at it. So that's the ASRAM. Uh, wow. You've then got a long-range radar-guided missile uh, called the Meteor, and you've got another one, as well called the AMRAM and American weapon. So you've got loads of different types of missiles you can fire. It's then got, um, apart from the gun, which you can use in the air-to-ground mode, it's got some very clever uh, weapons called Paveway 4s, which are 500-pound uh, uh, bombs, essentially, that you can program very, very accurately. So extremely precise weapons. And you can uh, drop those against all sorts of different targets. Uh, it's also got uh, things called uh, brimstone, which is like a very small um, rocket-powered, uh, low collateral weapon, and then it's got the storm shadow, which is the thing that you're talking about. You've mentioned, which is a huge, great big cruise missile, which can be used against very long-range sort of strategic targets, and it can fly for hundreds of miles. So, really, it's the Typhoon has got the capability to 
attack anything it needs to. Yes. And, and you know, I was reading, obviously, that excerpt um, when you had to destroy the ISIS truck bomb. And, you know, you go into great detail about having to come in at, you know, a certain altitude to, to, to you know, drop the throttle back to make the plane as quiet as possible. And, but because you're using the, the machine gun and you're strafing, so to speak, um, the plane has to be lined up perfectly. Even though, you know, I know you said there you have all of these directional missiles and everything, but with the machine guns and the plane, there's moments when you need to use the plane as its own kind of directional weapon, isn't there? That's absolutely right. And, yeah, I had to use the the, the aircraft gun on one occasion, particularly busy uh, day where we'd already struck an anti-aircraft gun, an ammo storage facility. There were some snipers that were harassing civilians uh, and then a huge firefight where a lot of enemy were firing rocket propelled grenades uh, and machine guns at friendlies. And so we'd been involved in this thing for hours uh, and then had to use the gun. And you're quite right, the gun is essentially a, a bore-sighted cannon that just fires in a straight line, just like any other gun. And to fire it, you've got to point the aircraft, not the gun. And so this thing's, this shell's going to come out and, and go exactly where you hit it. But the challenge is that you're, you're not lying down prone and taking aim carefully. You're flying at 500 miles an hour, um, and uh, in my case, about 30 degrees nose down, uh, and accelerating. And so trying to aim that using a, a little aiming marker in the head-up display that had to really be to within a millimeter of accuracy to get it anywhere near the target. And so, uh, yeah, in that particular instance, I rolled the aircraft on its back, tried to come out of the sun so that I couldn't be seen very easily, fired the gun, and as soon as I'd fired it, then uh, put some uh, some countermeasures out, some infrared countermeasures in case I was being shot at. Um, obviously, no, no, nothing can deflect an enemy bullet, so I just hoped that nothing would hit me, and luckily nothing did, and then climbed back up as quickly as I could to get up to altitude again. Wow. It's so interesting. I mean, I, I, there are so many things there, obviously, and you know, I, we don't have a lot of time today, but I mean, in the future, we'll bring you on. We'll talk more about some of those actual missions. But for the moment, you know, for the listeners, they can go and read the book, and there's so many, much more detail in the book. But one kind of last question I want to ask you, an interesting thing is, and you, you, when you said there, you studied philosophy. So one excerpt from your book, which I thought was fascinating, was you said you were in the plane. You know, I don't know, was it one of your first missions or your first missions in a certain place? And you were kind of thinking to yourself, what am I doing here? Because I'm, you know, I'm killing people or I'm, I'm involved in something that's taking human life. So that must be something that's very hard to deal with because... I imagine for a soldier on the front line artillery, you know, if you're if you're walking on the ground and you shoot someone, it's at closer range. But if you're in a plane and you're whatever, you know, a mile up, two miles up, and then you're, you know, sending missiles down or whatever, is that something psychologically you have to really be strong with? It's a really interesting question. And you're not quite as close to it as, say, a soldier who's 30 yards away from someone else. But you're you're very much involved in that it's happening perhaps multiple times on a, on a trip, on a sortie, and then two days later it's happening again, and then it's happening again and again. And you have a very uh, high-definition, clever camera in the aeroplane that often we'd use as part of that, um, 
part of that weapon aiming. And so you're very much aware of exactly what you're doing. The, the most important thing is that uh, you, you don't affect any civilians and there are no civilian casualties or collateral damage. And uh, for the five months we were out there, hundreds of strikes, there were no, there were no civilian casualties, which is something I'm most proud of for that whole detachment. Um, and it's, you're in a position where you do put up a bit of an emotional shell around yourself to cope, I think. Um, you're very focused and you're, you've got all sorts of emotions, really, when you're about to drop a weapon. But the overriding one is just that you want to do this professionally and, uh, and effectively. And you're only really doing it when uh, uh, one of your friendly soldiers' lives is in danger. And so... For 95% of the time, we did some strikes which were pre-planned. One of them was against a bomb-making factory, um, which was very successful. And this thing was was making suicide vests and things, and, and we knew that they were blowing themselves up in markets and killing civilians, so we did a pre-planned strike against that. Most of the attacks, though, were uh, doing a thing called close air support, where the friendly troops on the ground are in dire straits. They're, they're about to lose their lives, and they, they call an air support. So it's not just... Uh, the emotional aspect of what you're talking about, but it's it's the pressure that you've got to get this done and you've got to get it right. And if you don't get it right, actually someone else on your side is going to die. And so there's there is a fair amount of pressure in in those moments. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine you're you're there's a, there's a balance between what needs to be done and you know as you said, if there's someone that's in danger on your side. So it's one of these things. I suppose it's a never ending kind of saga where you're like people say yeah but is war worth this but then the people on the front line in war and the victims of war are kind of going well in our case we need those troops to be there so it's one of these things that on a collective level or but more on an individual level for every soldier or every airman it's that emotional thing of what what am i doing here what are the implications and how does it make me feel isn't it exactly right and it's the the soldiers and the pilots don't choose to go to war. We don't we don't decide when it happens no. or when it ends. You know that's the job of the elected politicians, and we live in democracies, and 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 those people are paid to make those decisions. And what they want is a an armed forces that will respond. You know when they decide that the time is right, and we put our trust in them to make those good decisions. And I'm sure your listeners will have views on whether they always make the right decisions. But what I've tried to do in the book is um, of course. just explain what it feels like to be involved and, and be at the end of those decisions, uh, both for myself. And I've just given an honest account in the book of what it's like, but also with my colleagues. And I've exposed some of the conversations that we had and what we were thinking and what we were feeling. One of the other strange things, and I, I de actually dedicated the book to, to the families. Uh, I've put it to the families of pilots everywhere because all pilots have to go away and leave their families. Um, but one night, in fact, I was flying on Christmas Eve in 2015 and I'd been involved in a big mission over Syria and I was flying back and I have a daughter and I was flying back over Jerusalem and Bethlehem and I could see on the ground uh, people going in and out of the churches down there, you know, on the, on the most holy night, right? And I went back, went to bed uh, at about three o'clock in the morning, woke up at about six or seven to FaceTime my daughter who was opening up her Christmas stocking. And it was lovely to be able to do that because I guess even 10 years before that wouldn't have been an option. But it's just this, it, it's this strange thing where um, those sort of jobs and all the military uh, jobs, and I know there's plenty of other careers that take people away over those sort of periods as well. 
it has a huge effect on on the, the families and the loved ones back home. And I think that often the people who deploy get a lot of the attention and the focus, but it's often harder for the the partners and the children and the brothers back home who aren't there because they don't know what's happening minute by minute. And I think when I got back, I had conversations with, um, you know, with my own family and, and, and with families of my peers. And I, I took the time to reflect on that more um, in hindsight than, than when I was sort of immersed in it at the time. I can imagine. Yeah. So I'm going, I'm going to let you go. I know you're, you're pretty busy, but you know, in the future, we'll talk more about all of this and more things in the book. But there's one question I have to ask you where, where I think it's quite interesting. Nowadays, you know, we have so many conspiracy theorists and I know pilots all over the world get now asked nowadays about the whole flat earth thing. I'm not a flat earther, by the way, but I can imagine, and on and, and lots of shows, and there's lots of young people coming up who see these theories, but for pilots, like commercial pilots and um, jet pilots and everything, they're up there. And these people are saying, look, there's, you know, the world is as it is. It's as they say it is. What do you say to these people, like the flat earthers or people who have these theories but can't prove it? <laughs> oh, it's, I probably quite like a conspiracy theory as much as the next person, but... Um... The, the Earth's definitely not flat. When you get up to 55,000 feet, you can see it curved. And all of our navigation systems are, yeah. um, are based on the fact that the Earth is a, is a circle. So, yeah, that particular one, I think, is, um, it, it is without question. It's without question. Yeah, I wanted to leave it on a lighter note there because I always laugh, you know, like the, I always call them the armchair terrorists or the armchair experts because, you know, they're like on TikTok or Instagram and they're like, no, no, I read it here and I saw this. But you have to kind of take the word of all these pilots who are up at 50,000 feet and so on and see the sphere, the globe, and they know what's really happening, yeah, don't they? It's, it's, it's pretty fair. Fair analysis, yeah. Listen, just give your give your book one last plug there for us. Tell us just very briefly what the book is about and where you can get it. Great. It's called Typhoon, the inside story of a fighter squadron at war. And it's available from all good bookshops and uh, Amazon and on the internet. So type it into Google, it'll pop up. Brilliant. Mike Sutton, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you and we will talk to you again soon, hopefully. Thanks very much, Simon. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed that chat. Lots of interesting and technical details about your career, Mike, and the Typhoon. You know, book tells us a lot more about the Eurofighter Typhoon. So we really enjoyed that chat. And I learned a lot more today than I thought I knew. So thank you very much for that. And you're welcome on the show anytime. Thanks a lot. Mike Sutton, everybody. Okay, everybody, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I hope you'll keep tuning in and listening and please give us the love and like and subscribe and follow wherever you see the buttons. And we look forward to giving you great content all the time. And let's, you know, make sure you enjoy the show. That's the first thing we want. Okay, till the next time, take care of yourself and your family and we will see you again further on down the road. All the best from me, your host of the Collective Whisper Podcast, Simon K. Take care. Bye bye. (laughs) 